I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The search for a diagnosis can take many years and require going from doctor to doctor without finding a definitive answer for people with ultra-rare conditions, atypical presentations, or yet-to-be-discovered diseases. A group of undiagnosed and ultra-rare disease patients and their family members, medical providers, and advocacy partners launched the Undiagnosis Diseases Network Foundation to improve access to diagnosis research, and care for people with undiagnosed diseases. We spoke to Amy Gray, CEO of the UDNF, about its work, its relationship with the National Institutes of Health-backed Undiagnosed Disease Network, and the organization's top priorities. Amy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Danny. We're going to talk about people living with undiagnosed rare diseases, the Undiagnosed Diseases Network, and the Undiagnosed Diseases Network Foundation, which is working to improve access to diagnosis, research, and care in close collaboration with the UDN. Perhaps we can start with the world of the undiagnosed. We hear estimates of the diagnostic odyssey and the patient population. Uh, oftentimes, these are based on relatively small studies. What's known today about how many people are suspected of having an undiagnosed rare disease? That's a great question. I'll start with rare diseases. Uh, rare diseases are estimated to affect over 30 million people in the U.S. and over 350 million people worldwide, which is roughly one in 10 people. And there are over 10,000 rare diseases. So of these, we know there are a subset of ultra-rare diseases, and we know there's another subset of undiagnosed diseases. However, undiagnosed diseases and ultra-rare diseases are more difficult to define, including the overall prevalence. So, you know, as medical research institutions and consortia, you know, such as the Undiagnosed Diseases Network focus on this area, and as more, you know, people undergo extensive genomic characterization, the known incidence of undiagnosed and ultra-rare diseases will certainly increase. We, we also talk about the diagnostic odyssey in, in terms of averages. In reality, these numbers vary widely. People can be diagnosed at birth or they can go for 30 years or more without an accurate diagnosis. What's known about the diagnostic odyssey today in terms of time, the number of doctors and misdiagnosis a, a patient might go through before coming to an answer? Well, for many people with rare diseases, undiagnosed diseases, ultra-rare diseases, you know, getting a correct diagnosis can take years, as you mentioned, and many visits to many different doctors. You know, I was speaking with a family just yesterday, and they mentioned that they saw four different doctors just in their state alone before receiving a diagnosis. And that does not even account for the additional doctors that they saw out of state. And this is not an uncommon story. It's one we hear, you know, far too often, unfortunately. 
The diagnostic delay for patients really does vary, though. It, it can be from months to decades, um, you know, to unfortunately never. Um, and it depends on so many different factors, such as the patient's symptoms, their age, and then, of course, access, access to, you know, available resources. Um, you'd mentioned, you know, averages in some studies, and some of those studies do suggest that the average time for a diagnosis of a rare disease is about four to five years, and it, it can be, you know, on average close to a decade in other cases. But I think what, um, you know, taking a look outside of the numbers, what's important to know is that during this diagnostic odyssey, people with rare diseases might have so many unnecessary tests and procedures or receive the wrong diagnosis and experience delays in unfortunately getting effective care. And this, you know, this long timeline, what that can mean for people with undiagnosed and ultra rare diseases as, is that their disease progresses and they could, you know, potentially miss points in time when interventions could help. Rare disease patients face a lot of difficulties beyond their physical health. For undiagnosed patients, these can be even more intense as insurance companies may resist paying for treatments for an undiagnosed disease, the uncertainty of what's ahead in a disease without a name to put on it, and even other questions about their own sanity and veracity when they go to a doctor and are unable to get a diagnosis. What is that burden like for a, a patient with an undiagnosed condition? Well, veracity is a very good word that you used. Um, you know, unfortunately, most patients living with an undiagnosed or ultra rare disease receive only symptomatic care or symptomatic treatment, if any treatment at all. And an accurate diagnosis, you know, as we know, can result in the better management of the disease or identification of potential therapeutics. And, you know, in some cases, patients can avoid unnecessary treatments that do lead to side effects. We just talked about the, you know, the journey that patients experience towards diagnosis and how it typically does involve multiple interactions within the health system. It can in, involve, in, you know, inconclusive results and, you know, and again, in some cases can include misdiagnosis. So these challenges for patients not only bring on medical challenges, uh, physical, as you mentioned, but also mental health burdens for families. And then, you, you know, you couple that or you add to that the financial and emotional burden on a family. It, it really does take a lot of veracity for patients and, and, and their families. And, and that's why having a patient advocacy organization to turn to is so important. So patients and families have the support they need throughout their entire diagnostic journey. We've seen a, a rapid expansion of genome sequencing. The cost of the technology continues to fall. The speed of interpreting the genomes continues to accelerate. New technologies are improving the diagnostic rate. Were we in terms of seeing this technology used earlier in the diagnostic odyssey? Well, you know, it's estimated that 80% of rare diseases, give or take, have a genetic origin. And until 10 years ago, as you alluded to, genetic testing was expensive and the costs are falling. And Genetic tests years ago were really limited to a few genes or a gene panel at a time, but we're seeing so many advances now in next generation sequencing, and that has really just created this dramatic effect on the cost coming down, the accuracy improving, and just the utility of genetic testing as a whole. 
you know, in, in recent years with these gene panels and then exome sequencing, it's really helped to identify the causes of so many rare and ultra rare and undiagnosed diseases. And these technologies, you know, have allowed for the diagnosis of a sizable proportion of undiagnosed patients. Um, you know, some studies suggest between 25 and 35 percent of undiagnosed patients are being diagnosed and not just diagnosed, but with actionable findings, things that can actually, you know, um, you know, be put into place to help with the treatment. However, you know, and there's a big however, um, as fantastic it is that, you know, undiagnosed patients are getting a diagnosis, there's still a large proportion of patients that remain undiagnosed. And, you know, so utilizing these technologies early in the process can help detect findings for, again, roughly 25 to 35% of patients. And hopefully with the cost coming down, uh, you know, it'll just be more viable to run these tests earlier in the diagnostic process. And I think what we're also seeing is programs like the Undiagnosed Diseases Network, and they've demonstrated that exome sequencing can not only end that a kind of expensive process, um, but potentially, you know, invasive and emotionally challenging journey for patients that helps with the better disease management. I, I think it still comes as a an unwelcome surprise for many patients that pursue genetic testing to to find that as often as not, it, it doesn't provide an answer. But, you know, we've seen the emergence of things like long read sequencing and, and RNA sequencing mm-hmm. that's that's helping improve the, the hit rate. How well do we understand why we can't get an answer in many of those cases? Well, you know, as you said, technology does hold Great promise, and not just promise in some cases, you know, actionable findings, but it, it's also a numbers game or, you know, a matchmaking game. There, as, as you see a pattern of certain gene mutations coming up, these scientists can matchmake them. And the more patients that can get screened, the more data that's gathered, the better the possibility of matching these causative genes to the shared symptoms patients are experiencing. And that's why it's so important that we create as much awareness as we can. And not just awareness, but we increase access an opportunity, especially for those who have been underrepresented and underserved in our healthcare system. You know, another bottleneck, um, as, as you know, has just been the, the cost of diagnosis and the cost of these tests in the past and, and just the time that it takes to investigate these most pressing medical, you know, mysteries. Imagine having over 10,000 pages uh, or more of medical records to comb through in addition to looking at the, you know, exome sequencing results and trying to determine looking through all those different medical records, you know, what the potential diagnosis can be. That's very much the case for the participants that go through the UDN. So there's, there's time, there's cost, there's access, and, you know, what we would anticipate with continuous improvements in the accuracy and the affordability of these technologies, but also the utilization of AI to kind of cut down on some of that time, that as these advancements take place, it will lead to more promise for you know, delivering those diagnoses that we're looking for. Do you expect genome sequencing to, to be used as a newborn screening tool eventually? And if so, what will it take to get there? 
You know, that's a great question. It's also a very tough question. Um, you know, of the participants that have gone through the UDN, 50 diseases have been identified, which is pretty remarkable. And as many of those as possible have now been added to newborn screening panels, especially since, you know, many of the diseases that we're talking about affect kids, um, pediatrics, and they're, they're very rare, uh, rare genetic conditions that can cause very serious health problems. So that, that importance of that newborn screening allows doctors to diagnose babies quickly. And if there is some sort of, you know, some form of a treatment or therapy to treat babies as soon as possible. And I think we're already seeing some indications that these technologies are becoming a little more basic as screening tools. But of course, there's so many different considerations to think about with that, including, you know, ethical considerations, uh, importantly. Before we talk about the Undiagnosed Diseases Network Foundation, I thought it would be useful to explain to listeners who may not be familiar with the Undiagnosed Diseases Network to explain what it is, the work it does, and its success to date. Can you walk us through that? Sure. Um, well, the Undiagnosed Diseases Network has just this incredible history and track record. It was launched in 2008 and really established at that time as an intramural research program on undiagnosed diseases to, you know, to make progress in uncovering, understanding, and treating rare disorders. And the program's initial goals were to assist patients with unknown disorders to reach, you know, an accurate diagnosis for them and, and to discover new diseases that provide insight into genetics and human physiology. And there was a lot of success early on. And so building on the success of the Undiagnosed Diseases Program, the NIH launched the Undiagnosed Diseases Network in 2013 through the Common Fund. And the, at that time, the UDN expanded to include additional clinical sites, a central biorepository, a coordinating center, a sequencing core, a metabolomics core, a model organism screening center, and then expanded again in 2018 to include more clinical sites and a, a model organism screening center. So today, the UDN has truly been one of the most successful programs and a very robust program funded by the NIH. It's, you know, at its core, it's a research study with the purpose to bring together clinical and research experts from across the U.S. and to solve the most challenging medical mysteries, really using this highly specialized multidisciplinary approach and these advanced technologies through these cores that I mentioned. And through this study, you know, the goal is to help, you know, individual patients and families um, with this, you know, living with these undiagnosed diseases get answers. And the, the program has been so successful to date. It's really, truly remarkable when you look at some of the numbers. They've reviewed over 6,000 applications and evaluated over 21 participants in the study. And of the 21 partic 2,100 participants that they've evaluated, they've diagnosed over 650 people, which is a 30% diagnosis rate. And again, these are the most complex medical mysteries. And these diagnoses have led to the discovery of 50 new diseases. Um, and you know, findings on some of these diseases and the mechanisms of action are, that are causing them have led to learnings for other, you know, even more common diseases. So it's, it's truly been a very successful program. And we look forward to building on that. As you mentioned, the UDN has been funded by the National Institutes of Health's Common Fund. 
it was facing statutory sunset of its funding. And my understanding is that the foundation was created in part with an eye toward creating a funding mechanism to support its ongoing work. UDN did manage to secure $18 million in the spending bill that passed at the end of 2022. But what's the long-term funding outlook for the UDN and what's the ongoing need for its work? Well, there there is a, a big um, need for its work. Um, you know, we want to build on the success that it's had to date, and you know, we're fortunate to have that NIH common funding for ten years. But it you know it only lasts for ten years. It sunsets after that, and thanks to the advocacy of undiagnosed patients and families. Um, additional you know, funding through Appropriations Act of 2023 was secured to provide support to the UDN Coordinating Center, the clinical sites, and the research cores through this September, and then some limited support for the Coordinating Center and clinical sites through 2028. And it's really you know, those patients um, that came together along with other stakeholders in the community um, because of the dissipating funds from the NIH that felt the need to uh, put this patient-led foundation together you know, with really the intention to help grow and sustain and grow the UDN, but to, to more broadly serve you know, the undiagnosed disease community. What were the discussions around the creation of the foundation and what's its ongoing relationship with the UDN? You know, the discussions around creating the foundation and collaboration with these key stakeholders that came together last summer from within the UDN, I think really shows the power of the patient voice, the patient community when they gather together and and the important collaboration of patients with researchers, scientists and clinicians. And when you bring those stakeholders together, nothing is impossible. Um, you know, be, because the funds were dissipating from the common fund, there, there was a need uh, to put some new strategies in place to sustain and expand the UDN, but also, again, to provide this broader support. So what happened last summer was this group of stakeholders put together a needs assessment and, and conducted that last summer to really better understand what would this funding change mean for the community. And the team identified several opportunities, you know, in addition to continuing to support the UDN to help improve outcomes for the entire undiagnosed and ultra-rare disease patient community. And really what, what came out of the conclusion of that needs assessment and those discussions was that there was a need for a new model, a patient-led organization that could help uh, moving forward to sustain and grow efforts for the community. And, and that's how our foundation was born. You joined UDNF as its inaugural CEO. You have a background in heading patient organizations. Is there something different about heading an undiagnosed disease organization? Are there different challenges you face in working with undiagnosed patients relative to patients who share a common disorder? You know, I would say there are similarities in heading these different types of organizations. And then, there, you know, there are differences as well. I've learned so much from some of the larger organizations I've worked for. When I say larger, I mean larger size organization and funding and staffing resources and numbers of patients in the community. You know, at those organizations, you learn a lot about fundraising, best practices, operational efficiencies, strategic program development. And all of these learnings can be applied to, a, you know, more of a startup, rare, ultra rare, or in this case, undiagnosed disease foundation. But 
Also, having worked in rare diseases for a number of years, and just recently with the Charcot-Marie-Tooth Association, another rare disease, rare patient advocacy group, um, you know, where we did have less funding and a smaller staff size and, and less resources to work with and a smaller patient community to work with, you find ways to do more with your resources. And you to take you take a much more entrepreneurial approach to getting things done and building in, of course, all the necessary due diligence um, and operational best practices, but not letting the red tape or the bureaucracy creep in that you do sometimes see at larger organizations. And you know, really, what that means, you know, for our organization moving forward is that it's really important that you know every patient if possible, and every family get involved in some way. You know, they give their time, their talent. Um, You know, we had a meeting just the other night with this incredible group of volunteers that's coming together to work with us at the UDNF. And, you know, they're working to help us create some patient resources that don't exist for the undiagnosed disease community. And, you know, this group of volunteers, you know, their patients, their healthcare professionals are all tied to our community and they have the most incredible professional expertise and personal passion for our mission. And it really ranges from, you know, a number of sectors from mental health counseling to marketing to, to technology. And so they're sharing their talent and, and their time with us. And so I guess the point is that everyone can play a role and we encourage everyone to pr- play a role if they can. In some sense, I imagine people are part of a community that they don't know exist or, or may not realize they're a part of. Is there any surprise in people discovering that the organization even exists? Well, we're we're doing our best to get the word out, you know, about the organization now. Uh, our 501c3 was just approved this spring, and so we're we're really putting the the time and effort into building that community and creating that awareness as, in many places as possible. And that's why opportunities like this one are are so um, helpful to us to really create that awareness within the community. As you think about people living with an undiagnosed rare disease. What's the greatest needs they face? That's a tough question. I mean, there are so many needs that, um, you know, that the undiagnosed and ultra rare disease community faces. Um, you know, they're looking for answers throughout the diagnostic journey. journey. Um, they're looking for access to, to research, to medical care and support. And I think one of the biggest needs that they're looking for is they're looking for a community that they can turn to other patients and other families of a support system, so to speak. And, you know, diagnosis is just one of the, you know, unmet needs faced by the community. Um, But when a patient receives a diagnosis, then, you know, they most likely will not have an available therapeutic option. And so this underlines the need for, follow-up research and development, um, you know, looking at genetic therapies and repurposing as existing drugs. Um, but we also know there's challenges like access to diagnostics, access to research and care and therapeutics, and that they don't equally impact all, you know, all members of our community. We know that communities of color disproportionately experience the burden of rare disease. And even at the microcosm of the UDN, we see how patients of color 
low-income and geographically isolated patients and families, and, and also those with limited English proficiency face barriers to equitable access and resources and processes. So that's something that we, we need to work on. Um, and that's why, you know, our foundation is led by patients, um, you know, and, and families really hopes to become that central resource to help um, provide, you know, the resources for those unmet needs that the community is looking for, you know, from us. And we, we truly believe that no patient or family should have to go through this journey alone. Does the organization expect to work on the policy front at all? You know, when we did the needs assessment last summer, it was really evident to the, the team that um, involved that there are some great organizations already focused on advocacy in the rare disease space. So it's it's not, I, w- I would say it's not a core pillar of our mission. However, we do intend to support those advocacy organizations and those advocacy efforts and, and be involved in those policy discussions, especially when it comes to topics like appropriation funding, for the UDN, you know, genetic testing, access to treatments, and you know, some of those other unmet needs that we just discussed. So we we really truly, you know, envision our role is to be a partner with those advocacy organizations, but also to encourage the patient and uh, community to get involved both at the state and federal level. As you think about the organization's work, what are the top priorities initially? Well, you know, our priorities really revolve around improving access to diagnosis, um, to research and care for the community. And uh, there's kind of four key areas that we're going to be focused on initially. Um, The first is the sustainability and growth of the work within the UDN. Um, We are going to do everything in our power in partnering with other advocacy organizations and the patient community to ensure that the UDN has the appropriations funding moving forward. And of course, the foundation will be kicking off our own fundraising efforts to not only sustain but expand the work of what's going on within the UDN. You know, the second key area is um, around this area of patient and family navigation, and, and we'll be launching a program called a Patient Navigator Program. And really, the intention of that is to help guide patients and families throughout the diagnostic and therapeutic odyssey. So we'll be focused on helping improve access to diagnosis, access to treatments, improving their experience, you know, going through the diagnostic odyssey and Hopefully, all of that will lead to better outcomes for patients. Uh, a third you know, really important area and part of our, our one of our core mission pillars is to this idea of community outreach and building a community for the undiagnosed and ultra-rare disease community. You know, we hear from so many families, especially those that are undiagnosed, that they just don't feel like they have a home to turn to or a place to turn to. And we want to build that community for, for them and for their families. Um, You know, and then also a really important thing that we're working on is developing strategies in collaboration with the UDN and and other patient advocacy groups to improve access and and health equity and to remove some of those barriers that exist. And then I would say the fourth um, and and final key area that we're working on and and focused on initially is patient-centered research and clinical care. I mean, ultimately, our our ultimate goal, um, you know, is to create what we call like a learning healthcare network. Um, But initially, we really want to start out by looking at the patient experience and how we can optimize that and then also look at standards of care and what those standards of care are and how they can be shared more broadly across the healthcare network and the healthcare system. 
So we, um, you know, we have a lot of work ahead of us. We're, we're excited to embark on this work. We have an incredibly dedicated board of directors, uh, strong collaboration with the UDN and NIH leadership and with other, you know, patient advocacy groups and developing collaborations with them. Um, we really look forward to building a community of resources for the undiagnosed and ultra-rare disease patients and their families. Amy Gray, CEO of the Undiagnosed Diseases Network Foundation. Amy, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.